on the prequel to the 34th episode, we're revisiting Third Person Limited, previewing Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, and taking our Pottermore wand quiz. Well, welcome back to This Film is Lit, the podcast where we talk about movies that are based on books. We're back into Harry Potter after a venture down to the quaint little village of Sleepy Hollow. In our opening segment, Learning Things with This Film is Lit, or Learning with This Film is Lit, whatever it's called. No matter what anybody tells you, words and ideas can change the world. We're going to talk, we're going to revisit Third Person Limited, which was the first thing we talked about yeah. in Learning Things in the Harry Potter yeah, segment. Way, so let's, let's do that. way back when we started this Harry Potter journey, um, in the prequel to the Sorcerer's Stone episode... Uh, the topic that we discussed in this segment and then again in the main episode was point of view mm-hmm. in the Harry Potter novels. And at that time, I did say we were going to come back to this subject at a later date. And guess what? We've arrived. Well, there we are. Um, so here's a quick refresher. The Harry Potter novels are told in third person limited point of view. Um, third person means that the voice is he said, she said, they said, rather than I said, which is first person. Um, however, limited means that the narration isn't omniscient. Um, by and large, we are limited to Harry's perspective. And way back in July, I described this as being like there's a camera sitting on Harry's shoulder so that we can follow him around. Now, there are some exceptions to this third person limited rule. Um Way more than I yeah. initially remembered. Yeah, rereading it, especially now, even in six, there's even mm-hmm. more. The first two chapters yeah. are neither of them are from Harry's perspective yeah. uh, that he would have no knowledge of. So. Um, but for the most part, it holds true that we are limited to Harry's perspective. Yeah. Now, at that time, way back when, I also posited a theory for why Rowling uses third-person limited perspective. And what I said was that she uses this technique to create red herrings, um, particularly in regards to Snape and Malfoy. Because while third-person makes it seem like what you're getting is an all-knowing god voice, Mm -hmm. like a god narrator, um, we're actually limited to Harry's perspective. So his suspicions of Snape and Malfoy's nefarious actions throughout the series always turn out to be just that, suspicions. Mm -hmm. Um, That is until Rowling flips the script on us. Uh, By book six, the story element has played out so many times that even we as readers might be inclined to be like, come on, Harry, have you ever been right about this? You haven't. No. You have not. (laughs) Um, But then suddenly he is right, um, at least to some extent. Yeah. Uh, Spoilers for six (laughs) Well, yeah. We haven't really been worried about spoilers no, up to this no, point. No, no, but uh, yeah, it's been sometimes with the prequel episodes if people are rewatching or I don't know watching the movie yeah. for the first time or something. But he is right about it up to some extent. Um, spoilers: Malfoy is a Death Eater. Yes, um, and at least at the end of this book slash movie, it sure does seem like Snape was really for Voldemort mm-hmm. all along. Um, so all of those little red herrings that are created by the narration style, uh, sprinkled throughout books one to five, have led up to this even bigger red herring, and then later an even bigger <laughs> red herring, <laughs> an even redder herring. <laughs> yeah, I will say this. 
and I'm curious to get your input on it. I think Rowling went a little heavy-handed with this element in Half-Blood Prince um, in regards to other characters not listening to Harry. Yeah. Like, for me, it's mostly just Ron. Um, Like, to me, it makes sense for the adults to brush him off Mm -hmm. and even for Hermione to do it without some kind of clear evidence. But I feel like Ron would be with Harry more than he is. Yeah, I I agree so far with where I'm at about halfway through that it is a little hard to believe that Ron would be so. Although, I mean, to the, to the to be fair, I don't. We have so repeatedly, yeah, because it's happened three or four times. I guess probably like three times where Harry has been like, "No, it's this person." Is I'm suspicious of this person, and all every time previously, Ron's been there right along with them. True, and been wrong every time. That maybe this time Ron is like. yeah okay (laughs) fool me once shame on me fool me three times super shame on me like what (laughs) so i can kind of buy why he even ron's not yeah fully on board with harry's suspicion but yeah i guess you would think eventually that's not because i don't remember when he Mm -hmm. buys into it it may not be till we've the reveal at the end, I don't remember. Like yeah. I said, I'm not there yet, so. But regardless, I do think it's an interesting technique. Um, and it's kind of a fun study in how to use narration style and perspective for more than just what it is. I agree. I agree. It's been, uh, yeah, it is an interesting, because it's not a super common perspective, I don't mm-hmm. think. At least it doesn't seem like it. Because to some extent, it's not uncommon. It's not uncommon, but, well, I guess it depends on, like, what genre you're reading. Yeah. Um, I think third person tends to be a little more common in children's literature. Yeah. Um, whereas, at least in my experience, first person tends to be more common in, like, young adult yeah. or adult lit. Because it's more easily uh, self-insertable. Yeah. For the reader. Yeah. To some extent. All right. Well, that was a revisit on Third Person Limited, learning about Third Person Limited in the Harry Potter series. So now we're going to move on to Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince book facts. This place has known magic. Very dark. Very powerful. This time, I cannot hope to destroy it alone. All right. Uh, Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, published on July 16th of 2005. It sold 9 million copies in the first 24 hours after its release, which was a record at the time, um, eventually broken by Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it sold 6.9 million copies in the U.S., and Scholastic actually had to rush an additional 2.7 million copies into print. Wow. You would think at this point they would know yeah. that they needed yeah, to right? print like, to a print hell of a lot. lot of these books. Yeah, you would think by book six they'd have it figured out. But apparently they underestimated it. Um, that publication was accompanied by some controversy. Uh, in May 2005... Bookmakers in the UK suspended bets on which main character would die in the book um, amid fears of insider knowledge. Mm. I didn't find a ton of information on this, but I I like the idea that bookmakers in the UK just like have bets going 
on what'll happen in books. Oh, well, yeah. Wait, are you... Okay, just to be clear, bookmakers in this context is... Is the publishers. No. Bookmakers is bookies. It's people who... I'm like... Because I thought that at first, but I'm like 99% sure... Because how would the book make, how would publishers have any, they wouldn't have bet, they wouldn't be doing anything to do with bets. I Bookmaker, it's 100%. Bookmakers is people, like like bookies, like people who take bets, uh, like like in Vegas, you know. Okay, I, I believe you. I've never heard bookies called bookmakers. Yeah, they are. That, that's not uncommon. Bookies is like short for bookmakers. Yeah. That's like where it comes. I'm like 90% sure I'll double check when I'm editing this. And if I need to correct it, I will. But I thought the same thing. I was like, why? Cause I was like bookmakers. Why would the bookmakers have? And then I was like, Oh, not the publishers, the like bookmakers. They, they, they thought there had been a leak. So they were no longer taking bets because uh, you're following sentence here. You didn't read yet. Explain. Right. They- yeah. Um, so apparently there were a number of high value bets made on the death of Dumbledore. Um, many of them coming from the town of Bungay, mm-hmm. um, where it was believed the book was books were being printed at the time. So yeah, there, there. So there, the bookmakers were saying, yeah, we're not going to take any bets on this because these people are placing huge bets, and oh, surprise, surprise, the people placing these huge bets may or may not work in the factory where the books are being printed. You know. Well, so, at yeah. least they kept it on the up and up. Yeah. Um, another, well, they kept it on the up and up because they would lose a bunch of money. If fair enough. Um, another controversy uh, in early July of 2005, um, a Canadian store accidentally sold 14 copies of the Half-Blood Prince before the authorized release date. Jeez Louise. And I, I love this one because I feel like this would only happen in Canada. Uh, The Canadian publisher actually obtained an injunction from the Supreme Court of British Columbia uh, prohibiting purchasers from reading the books before the the official date or from discussing the books. The discussing, I could see... I don't doing, know how you would, but possibly I don't know how you possibly that. enforce. I could see how if you could enforce somehow, you know, if you found out they had told, if they'd posted, st- you know, yeah. that seems potentially like. But, well, but right. Reading if it, you it's had like, some kind of evidence of it, but yeah, how would you enforce like reading it and read having it, yeah. a ch- conversation with your friend about it? Like, how could you possibly? Yeah. Um, purchasers were offered a Harry Potter T-shirt. And an autographed copy of the book if they returned their copies before the sixteenth of July. Mm-hmm. Well, I would be I would be down for that for an autographed copy. Yeah, I mean I I could imagine that if the people who got them were Harry Potter fans, they'd be down for that. And now they probably would be. But if they were like people of less scrupulous morals, because I don't <laughs> know, I wonder legally what. And now you say that you know the injunction from the Supreme Court saying they're prohibited from reading it or whatever. I wonder what their legal ramifications could be if they were sold the book and they turned around and sold it to somebody. Yeah. You know, like some company who wanted to break right. the... Right, a, a, a publication or something. Yeah, who wanted to have the, you know, whoa, yeah, like a news, not a newspaper, like a tabloid or a yeah. magazine of like, we know who dies in the Harry Potter book two weeks before it comes out and they sell it, you know, That's somebody... A good question. I don't know, like if they could get sued maybe or if not because they weren't the one, they didn't steal the books, they were, you know, I don't know, it's interesting. Oh, that, would, that would make an interesting, not a movie, but like a little documentary. <laughs> yeah. I would like to watch a documentary about how that all would work. Um, Rowling sta- has stated that she had Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince planned for years. 
um, but she spent an entire two months going over her plan before she began actually writing the story. Um, And if you remember back to the Goblet of Fire prequel, I mentioned that she had to rewrite a lot of that one because she noticed a plot hole halfway through writing. Mm -hmm. She learned her lesson. Yeah. Um, And I thought this was interesting. Uh, The first chapter of Half-Blood Prince, The Other Minister, the one where the the Mm -hmm, muggle minister meets the... The the magic minister. Yeah, the minister of magic. Um, That was a concept that Rowling apparently actually tried out in Sorcerer's Stone, Prisoner of Azkaban, and Order of the Phoenix. But she said it didn't really fit or work until she tried it in the Half-Blood Prince. Yeah, it definitely fits in Half-Blood Prince. Mm -hmm. I can see why she would want to do it at some point. Like, I can see having that idea of, like, the minister showing up and explaining to the muggle minister that wizards exist. But it makes sense in the context of book six because all of these terrible things are happening. And it's like a grave security threat to the whole world or at least all of England or whatever. And eventually, potentially, the whole world. So and they, the, yeah, and the, and the idea of there being a new minister and, too, and there's a new one yes. offers like extra excuse extra for that reason. to need for that to happen. Yeah, um, Half Blood Prince was received positively by critics, who by and large praised the novel's use of themes and its development of its teenage characters. Uh, Julia Keller of the Chicago Tribune called it the most eloquent and substantial addition to the series thus far. Um, However, some did criticize the book for being a bit exposition-heavy, while others were, of course, as we see time and time again, uh, concerned about the darker, heavier elements of the novel. Sure. Everybody's always so worried about that. Yeah. It's it's a bit... I don't know. It's... Unless there's more at the end, but her novels are always exposition-heavy at the end. Yes. Or at least all the Harry Potter ones, mostly, are pretty exposition-heavy at the end. And so far where I'm at, it's not been... Exp- I mean, the first, the, the other minister is a little exposition-y, because it's just the minister explaining stuff, kind of. But I suppose you could make the argument that a lot of it is exposition-y in that a lot of it is learning about Voldemort's backstory. Right. I, I was going to say that, but it's not in the sense that you're there watching yeah, the events. Yeah, it's not Dumbledore telling you yes. about it. You're actually going you're into getting the descriptions and of seeing the, it happen. I was, but I think you could make that argument. I was going to say the same thing. I was like, I could see how you might argue that the uh, the memories are, yeah. you know, because they do a lot of going into the pensive and memories. Is, is it exposition in like a literal, like, in like some sort of sense, it is, exp- you know, sort of... It's exposition. exposition in the sense that it's background information yeah, and being that you need getting, yeah, to understand the on. story. But, but it's, it's not delivered like exposition. Yeah. It's delivered like It's events. not somebody standing there monologuing. Yeah, it's, it's, it's essentially no different than the first chapter of Goblet of Fire, mm-hmm. where we go and we get sort of the background of the Riddle family when they were killed. Yeah. But in this instance, we're watch it we're watching it from the perspective of harry and dumbledore being Mm -hmm. in these memories as opposed to just jumping in and sort of getting the story of these memories like it wouldn't be any different if and it wouldn't be quote-unquote exposition i don't think or at least i wouldn't consider it if we just got the story like uh, yeah i don't know i i i I don't i don't necessarily agree that it's exposition heavy or at least any more so than the rest of them yeah i don't necessarily agree with that either but again i can see where you could make that argument yeah um, Half-Blood Prince did win several awards. 
as they all have up to this point. Um, it won the 2006 British Book of the Year and the 2006 Royal Mail Award for Scottish children's books for ages 8 to 12. And in the United States, the American Library Association listed it among its 2006 best books for young adults. Yep, they've all won several awards, and this one is no different. Let's move on to Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince movie facts. From Warner Brothers Pictures. To do this. Fight back, you coward! Fight back! So, Harry Potter and Half Blood Prince was originally scheduled to come out in 2008, but ultimately got pushed back to 2009, which this, I didn't write this down, but apparently the studio got death threats about. It being moved back from, you know, idiots on the internet or whatever. But it's directed once again by David Yates, which is the only second time that somebody has directed two movies. Mm. And David Yates goes on to also direct both of the uh, yeah, Deathly Hollows. Yeah, you said that in um Yeah, in I've mentioned it. He goes on to direct both of the Deathly Hollows installments and he has directed both of the Fantastic Beast movies okay. since yeah, then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but Alfonso Cuaron said he would love the opportunity to return uh, and direct it, which he did not say the same thing when they, they offered him four mm-hmm. and said, do you want to come back and direct four? And he said no. Part of that being he was in, well, I think I mentioned at the time, he was still in the post-process for three. Right. Like he wasn't done with three yet. And so he was, a little the idea out. of jumping right back yeah. in and doing four was probably a little overwhelming. And yeah, a little burned out. So, but he wanted to come back, but they didn't offer it to him. But they did offer our boy Guillermo del Toro once again. They've offered him like every movie, and yeah. he once again turned it down. <laughs> I think this one would have been right up his alley. I think. No, I agree. With, with this, this would have been really interesting. Really good. Probably the best makes the most sense as a del Toro mm-hmm. adaptation. Uh, maybe three a little bit, but this one really because you get kind of the weird creatures with the Inferi and some other, and it's a little bit darker and a little more. Mm-hmm theme heavy and i think it would have been right in del toro's wheelhouse so it would have made sense for him to direct but he wanted to direct hellboy 2 which is hellboy's one of his passion projects so it's understandable (laughs) uh emma watson apparently i didn't know this was considering not returning for this film or the final two films uh kind of came to like she just wasn't sure if she wanted to keep doing she said at the time she wasn't even sure if she wanted to keep acting because i'm sure you know again it's you she's at to this point she's committed seven years of her young life to this and it's just got to feel you know like again sort of overwhelming and just kind of getting burnt out on it but ultimately she said the pluses outweigh the minuses and she couldn't bear to see anyone else play Hermione so she stuck it out for the last few movies that would have been weird it would have been very weird I mean we would have got you would have you know they did it with Dumbledore because they had to right you would but that's but Dumbledore had only been in the first two and very little even yeah. in those he's not even in them that he much. wasn't like a major major character mm-hmm. like hermione is no no i agree yeah it it uh it would have been it would have been really weird but they didn't have to do it luckily christian colson who played tom riddle in chamber of secrets uh wanted to come back for the flashbacks or for the memories to play mm-hmm. riddle again but they're like well you're almost 30 so it won't <laughs> exactly work for most of yeah. the there's i guess maybe i'm not there yet there might be some memories when he's a little older in school yeah well like when yeah, he's like a fifth year or whatever might have been a couple that they could have potentially yeah. gotten away with but, but even those he's still you yeah. know kind of 15 or Would 16 depend on how well he'd aged <laughs> yeah he definitely couldn't play the 11 year old right. obviously because yeah he's again almost 30 
ultimately they did cast uh, Ralph, or sorry, the nephew of Ralph Fiennes. Hmm. Uh, his name is Hero Fiennes Tiffin. That's a name. Uh, and now, obviously, Ralph Fiennes plays Voldemort. Right. He didn't get the role. Ye- David Yates said he didn't get the role because of his relation to Rafe. He did. I believe it is Rafe, not Ralph. He did get partially because he looked like him, mm-hmm. like, or looked similar enough. That was part of it, but not like he wasn't like nepotism, supposedly. Mm. But he also said that uh, the actor, that hero, which is his name, uh, was able to find a darker space in his line readings that he thought sort of captured Interesting. the the slightly offness of yeah. a young Tom Riddle. So the exteriors of the Horcrux cave from the third act. Uh, were shot at the Cliffs of Moher in Ireland, which have made an appearance in our show before in the very first episode. They're the real-life Cliffs of Insanity from The Princess Bride. <laughs> so they're they're back in this one, standing in as the cliffs from, yeah, the, the Horcrux Cave. Half-Blood Prince is the only film in the series to be nominated for Best Cinematography uh, really? at the Academy Awards. They haven't been nominated for that many Academy Awards. Usually, if they do, it's something like... One of the technical awards, which this mm-hmm. is kind of, techni- kind of a technical sure, award, yeah. but there's it, it's considered more of a create like an artistic creative award as opposed to like sound mixing or mm-hmm. which even those are for sure. But, you know, those but, are like yeah, the technical where, categories. Where do you draw the line? Yeah. Um, but it was so it was nominated for best cinematography. Uh, the cinematographer Brune, Brune, it's probably Brunei, maybe. I, I don't mm-hmm. know exactly how to pronounce it. Del Bonnell used a lot of interesting angles and extreme close ups. Uh, he's a very celebrated cinematographer. Having been nominated for five Academy Awards for cinematography, including this, this film, A Very Long Engagement, Inside Lewin Davis, which is a Coen Brothers film, The Darkest Hour, which is the most recent, uh, the one Gary Oldman won an Oscar for two mm-hmm. years ago for playing, uh, or last year for playing um, uh, the Prime Minister. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. During World War yeah. II, whatever his name Churchill. is. Churchill. Churchill, Winston Churchill, yes. Uh, and Amelie, which I did not realize that was who... <laughs> Uh, the, the cinematographer was. Uh, uh, so this movie was shot by the same guy who shot Amelie. I didn't realize it the first time I saw this movie. I'm sure I'd seen Amelie at the time. If not, I saw maybe I saw. I might have seen Amelie like the year after I watched this movie because mm-hmm. this came out in 2009, and that was probably around the time I first watched Amelie in that ballpark. Some things you can look out for if you are watching rewatching the film. I can't, which I can't wait to do because I want to look for that sort of visual style because that's yeah. the thing that blew me away so much. The storytelling in Amelie is brilliant. The, the story is amazing. Uh, the acting, everything about the film, I think, is perfect. But uh, the cinematography was really blew my mind at the time and the way it was shot. It's just so different from a lot of films I had seen at the time. Um, but usually uses a very stylized color palette. Del Bonnell, Del Bonnell does. Mm-hmm. Um, Apparently, the studio made them dial it back in this film. He They had a first cut with how, or they had it put together with how Del Bonnell had color graded it and how we wanted it to look. And the studio was like, it's too stylized, basically. Mm-hmm. They didn't, they wanted it to kind of dial back from that, which I'd be really interested to see that cut of it. Yeah. Uh, that version yeah, of it. Yeah, that'd be interesting. Um, but he uses lots of close ups and he also normally uses a well, very well defined film grain because he shoots on. He usually shoots on film, which I guess this is probably digital film or whatever. But um, so, yeah, he has usually has a very distinct look. Uh, if you've seen any of those other movies, you know, he like I said, he's a very unique cinematographer, um, but he also morphs fairly well because I, like I, I haven't seen all of Darkest. I haven't seen the Darkest Hour, but I've seen the trailer and it doesn't uh-huh. scream sort of the same. Cor- it's 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 shot differently, but probably similarly unique to how Amelie is shot. Because Amelie is very quirky mm-hmm. and 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 to sort of match Amelie's character 
Uh, so I'd be interested. I'm interested again to rewatch this one, knowing who yeah, the cinematographer be is. Because again, Amelie is my favorite movie of all time, and and visually, I think it's just stunning. Uh, so the visual effects took months to complete for the inferior attack scene inside the cave at the end of the film. Mm. Uh, and they very consciously didn't want the infer- inferior to come across as like zombies. They were like yeah. a lot of it came down. So basically kind of boiled down to how they moved. They decided they didn't want them too slow, but they also didn't want them fast. But they also didn't want them like groaning and moaning. Like you're, yeah. they just didn't want them to like come across as zombies necessarily. Um, so they were trying to like write a fine line between, obviously they're similar ish, mm-hmm. but they didn't want you to just go with zombies, like zombies. Okay. <laughs> uh, also the visual effects for that scene in particular were done by double negative studios, which is like one of the best, uh, visual effects studios in hmm. the world. They've won uh, like a bunch of Academy Awards and worked on all kinds of stuff that you would recognize uh, if you most recently, if, which I've just been watching the Netflix series, Altered Carbon, they did all the visual effects in that, but uh, all kinds of other stuff. That's just the tip of the iceberg. If you need more evidence of Maggie Smith, uh, that Maggie Smith was the perfect badass to play McGonagall, Dame Maggie Smith completed filming this whilst undergoing radiotherapy for breast cancer. Wow. So uh, she's probably not in the movie as much for that reason as she might have been. Um, But still. Apparently, this is Daniel Radcliffe's least favorite of his own performances in the series. He said in an interview in 2014 that he was just not very good in it and said it's hard to watch, which I don't recall that being the case, but yeah, I don't really recall him ever being bad in any of them necessarily, Mm-mm. but I mean, we're, we're all our own worst critics. True, true. But it's funny that he said this one was the worst of the- Yeah, it's interesting. I think, I don't know. I haven't seen it in a long time. It's been time, a long time since so- I've seen it. I think I only saw this one once. Yeah, but it, is- it's interesting that he would single out this one in yeah. particular. yeah. It's strange. Um, So apparently the original script included all of Dumbledore's memories about Voldemort, which there are quite a few in the book, at least four, maybe more. And they had those all in the original script, but David Yates decided to trim it down. Uh, According to Steve Cloves, he wanted to showcase Voldemort's rise without getting overly involved with his past as Riddle, which I think is a bit of a mistake. Yeah. Just based on that sentence. Within, again, before rewatching the film and from what I remember of it, Right. I remember liking this movie overall and thinking it was pretty good, like uh-huh. a pretty good adaptation. But uh, that's a mistake because kind of his riddle, his his, his yeah, past his is riddle, past sort is, of informs exactly. Yeah, it sort of informs who he is yeah. and why he is. Uh, so not getting into that is well. And two, okay, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna exposit here for a minute. Um, at this point is where Voldemort starts to move more from like a cartoonish like bad guy right into a more like fully dimensional mm-hmm. we start seeing like his human origins yeah um, it gets really postmodern yeah um, the villain gets a backstory and yeah. we understand why he's a villain yeah it absolutely rolls into that uh, and and I the page I was just reading the other last night uh, there was something it was they were in a memory and of him when there was at the orphanage mm-hmm. and uh, Dumbledore says something or Harry says like you am I supposed to feel sorry for Voldemort or something like that or you want me to feel sorry for him or something like that and Dumbledore says something like no you don't need to feel sorry for him but I just want you to know why he's the way he is. Yeah. <laughs> like let's just understand why he's like he is and I for me and uh, always comes back to determinism but I find that a very interesting and uh important perspective yeah, it's, it's very postmodern, um, yeah. and it's very it's something that really takes the series away from 
the children's section of the bookstore because, you know, villains in children's stories do tend to be, it's black and white. They're villains because they're villains. Yeah, they're villains because they're evil. Yeah. Um, Like, if we think back to Matilda, we don't have a backstory for the Trunchbull. She's just evil. She's just bad because she is. Yeah, not that I, yeah, I don't recall any reason, yeah, any backstory for But here, you know, we start to get that backstory, and it ends up being really important for his downfall. Yeah. Yeah, and that was funny, because we had mentioned in one of the prequel episodes, or one of the main episodes in a previous book, and I think partially because we had forgotten how much of his backstory and kind of uh, the groundwork we get for why he is who he is. We I think we can kind of refer to him as more of a archetypal, like, yeah, villain, yeah. like black and white villain, which he's really not. And I think I partially because we had just sort of forgotten that. And we said at the time, I think we had caveated it saying that it's not he's not entirely like but because uh, we we're we we're comparing him to somebody else like, oh, like Umbridge or something. Mm-hmm. Or, 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 yeah. Oh, it was my episode about evil versus evil. Yeah, that's what it was. But up to that point, we kind of had only been Voldemort had only been presented as he's just the bad guy. Yes. As far as we knew, like yes. he was just evil. Um so yeah, this this book and movie definitely takes it in a different direction. Like you said, a more postmodern. Uh, and yeah, and it's not necessarily that we're intended to feel sympathy for him. No, it's that we're intended to understand him. Yeah. a little bit more. Yeah, yes, and it yeah, it, it, for me it goes in a whole different. Uh, it, it's yeah, it's a, it's an even more complicated issue than that. Uh, but that's a whole nother. That would take a whole nother. <laughs> Uh, hours and a half worth of time to discuss so we're not gonna get into that right now but one day maybe i'll rant about determinism for two hours and bore everybody to death um maybe we can get a philosopher on here to explain why i'm right <laughs> i'll just drink wine the whole time and chime in about postmodernism. production designer Stuart craig revealed and i didn't know this so that was interesting that the design for the three broomsticks was constructed for the wizarding world of harry potter the nice. theme park first, and then they recreated it for the movie. Nice. So that, like, when you go to the the theme park, the inside is mm-hmm. exactly like the movie. But it was wasn't the theme park basing it on the movie. Like, the, they didn't get notes from the movie. The, the theme park made it, and the movie was like, all right, we'll just do that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then finally, J.K. Rowling stated that this was her favorite of the six film adaptations so far. Mm. Now, that may change after the seven ones, who knows. But yeah. f- up to this point, she said this was her favorite of the six adaptations, which I can see. I, like I said, I remember liking this one more than four or five in terms of, at the time when I saw it, thinking it was... And now, I know they change a lot of stuff, but I remember, I guess, overall, just sort of liking it more than four or five. Mm-hmm. But probably not as much as one or two. And then three was kind of in the middle for me at the time. But we'll see. We'll see how it goes from there. That's all I have for movie facts. Let's do our Pottermore wand quiz and figure out what kind of wands we get. I still need a wand. A wand? Well, you want Ollivanders. There ain't no place better. Yeah, we we never did the wand quiz. Well, it is third technically on the way the True. Pottermore website lays it out, which seems a little weird. It seems like you would do wands before the Patronus. It seems like you would do wands before any of it. True, because that's how it works. Yeah, yeah right. Fair enough. Um, I can see why they put them in the order they do. Well, no, I can see why they put house first because, like, mm-hmm. that's the one most people right, are interested that in. Is the big thing. But it seems to me like you would still, even if you wanted house first, you would put wands before Patronus. Although it worked out for us because the Patronus was made sense to do with three. 
Yeah. Because that's when, or four or whatever we did, three. Well, because that's when Patronuses are introduced. Uh, and wands start becoming a little more important in this one and seven than they yeah. really have previously yeah. to some extent. Like the type of wands and that's, I mean, we got a little bit of it in four when we explained yeah, Priori and Cantatum and all that. What wands do and how they relate to each other yeah. and their wizards. And the whole owners and all that sort of thing. We get more of that in this one and then seven. So, uh, yeah, it's definitely, it makes sense. All right, we're going to do the okay. wand ceremony. Let's begin the experience. To ensure we find the perfect wand for you, it's very important to answer the following questions honestly. First of all, would you describe yourself as... Average height. Average height, short, tall, tall. absolutely tall. Oh, that just means short. I'm gonna get a longer wand. And your eyes. Is that what you got? Eyes, yes. Are Dark brown, black, no. Brown, uh, no. Hazel, blue no. Slash green, blue mine are more blue slash gray. Are mine blue or blue slash gray? Yours are blue slash gray. Okay. Yours I feel like are blue slash green. Yeah, blue slash gray, I guess. Yeah. I have a little bit of green was in the, them, but not much. Yeah. Was the day on which you were born, is that what you were doing? Yes. An even, even number? number or an odd, odd number? I was born on an even number. 29th for me. The 10th. Do you most pride yourself on your? Uh, let's see. Kindness. Nope. Optimism. Maybe. Determination. Mm, resilience. Nope. Imagination. Mm. Intelligence. Mm. Originality. Kindness. Mm. Oh, we're back around to the game. I would go, um, for me, optimism or intelligence. I got to go with resilience. That's fair. I think I'm a pretty eternally optimistic person. I don't know. I, I would say most pride myself on intelligence, but I'm not. Uh, originality, no. Imagination, maybe. Resilience, no. Determination, no. So it's either optimism or intelligence. What would you? Hmm. Well, what do you value more? I know. Uh, I don't know which. I mean, I value. I probably value. Well, no, I'm gonna go with optimism. I think. Traveling alone down a deserted road, especially more recently, I went through a very cynical path in my or time in my life. But I'm not. I'm not. In, I have not about that anymore. Traveling alone down a deserted road, you reach a crossroads. Do you continue? Look, hey, left towards the sea. Okay. Ahead towards the forest. Okay. Or right towards the castle. All right. Well, I know your um, answer. I continue towards the forest. Yes, I'm going towards that castle. Are you kidding me? Do you most fear? Uh, fire, darkness, isolation, small spaces, heights. Where's spiders? <laughs> Why is spiders <laughs> not on here? This is what they're missing. Um, okay. Of these, fire, darkness, isolation, small spaces, heights. Of those, of those, probably heights for me. Um, if I had to guess, I don't know. And small spaces don't really bother me. I Isolation guess I'll go a little. With darkness. See, darkness doesn't bother it, me. Fire doesn't. Bother. I mean, heights doesn't, is the only one that actually. I mean, I'm none at. of these really bother me all that much. No, none of them that much. But all of those are the one that most. I mean, unless you present scenarios of, like, burning alive, yeah, okay, that's sure, terrifying, yeah. but, like, just fire by itself, not really. Darkness, no, not at all, unless you're, like, metaphorical darkness, like, <laughs> okay, but, like, that's a different thing to me. Uh, isolation, sure, yeah, but I also like being alone quite a bit, so, like, <laughs> but heights, I just, generally, I'm not a big fan I of I was heights, really so. scared of the dark as a kid. I still don't, like, I don't necessarily like being in the dark, yeah. My imagination tends to run away with itself if I'm in like a pitch yeah. black room. So yeah. it makes as much sense as any. In a chest of magical artifacts spelled wrong, which 
spelled Britishly. British. I, I know. <laughs> I was joking. Uh, which would you choose? Um, ornate mirror. Okay. Dusty bottle. Golden key. Silver dagger. Bound scroll. Glittering jewel. Or black glove. Okay, not a black glove for me. Hmm. Um, Trying to divine the symbolic meaning yeah, of right. all these things, so I'm not going with mirror or jewel. Yeah, <laughs> um, I'm going to go with bound scroll. That I was think. the one that was most interesting to me. Yeah, although silver dagger is cool looking, I could be, I could see being into that. The golden key is tough because it, if there was something that, if I was in a room and there was something that looked like a had a lock that that key True. would open, yeah. I might grab that key and see what it opened. But without that bit of information, the bound scroll is interesting because I would want to know what's on it. Yeah. Oh, well, there we go. Oh, cool. Oh, we got to take a picture of this. Although it's like kind of covered. Yeah, mine is. It's like not strange. formatted very well. Uh, my wand is ashwood with a unicorn hair core, 14 and a half inches and pliant flexibility. Um, mine is cypress wood. With a phoenix feather core, 10 inches, and rigid flexibility. Ash is what they make baseball bats out of. Ooh, my, it's got a little picture if you click on more. Oh, they got a whole little thing about what all these mean. Most wands range between 9 and 14 inches, so mine is slightly longer than most wands. <laughs> <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> oh, cypress wands are associated with nobility. Ashwan's cleave to its one true master, not not to be passed on or gifted from the original owner. It will lose its power and skill. So maybe some types of wood, supposedly. So maybe like Neville, because he had his dad's. Yeah. Maybe his was not ash, clearly. Yeah. It was some other wood. I don't know. I assume we probably know what it is, like an extended cannon. Uh, Phoenix feather is the rarest core type. Wait a second. Is that... Is that what... that? This is blowing my mind. The flexibility and rigidity... Did you read that? One flexibility or rigidity denotes the degree of adaptability and willingness to change possessed by the wand and owner pair. Oh. That can't be what that was meant to mean originally. I always originally. thought it meant how bendy yeah, the how wand bendy was. it is. It's a, no, that's 100% what that meant. <laughs> I guarantee. I need to know people who into Harry Potter what, what they thought. I met, There's no way people thought that was what that meant. That There's no way I, when, you read, when you read flexible or rigid that you thought yeah. that meant like how rigid its rules are for staying with its mat. Like, no, I was always like, you can bend it so far. This, You know what this <laughs> feels like? You know what this is? You know 100% what this is. It's because if you go to Harry Potter Wizarding World, they're all the same material. Yeah. So they only bend the same amount. So they had to come up <laughs> yeah, with a different. They're all made out of resin <laughs> and they don't bend. So they had to come up with a different that is I would almost bet money that's what it is hmm. because they, they I swear they say in the books they say like how springy and flippy like that's yeah like good for because he says like oh good uh, it's, it's it's more uh, flexible it's good for charms work or what like that that was that's some retconned <laughs> capitalist shit right there <laughs> money grubbing I ooh that's weird I don't know how I feel about that. Anyways, that's all. <laughs> We're done. We can let's wrap it up. We don't need to sit here and wax on about all that. Right. So that's it for the prequel to the 34th episode of this film is lit. Uh, next week we are talking about Harry Potter and the 
Half I almost said Prince. Prisoner of Azkaban. Half Blood <laughs> Prince. So in the meantime, go out and uh, rent the movie and watch it. Whatever. It's like it's on. If you have cable, it's on. Like sci-fi has been playing all of yeah. them. I think it's sci-fi has been playing all of them over and over and over again for I the also, last three months. Don't quote me on this, but I heard a rumor that they were all coming to Netflix. Yeah, that so. wouldn't surprise me. So look out for them on Netflix, and you can catch up. But until next time, keep reading books, keep watching movies, and keep being awesome.